0: Well, our passage is in Matthew chapter 26, and we're in Gethsemane this morning. Let me read it to you, and then we will um, open the... Am I cutting in and out? I might just grab a a mic. Um. How's that? I feel like I'm um, cutting in and out. Right. We're in uh, Matthew in chapter 26, verse 36, uh, and let me read it to you this morning. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible... When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now I spend a little bit of time around local cricket and football club Um, In days past, a cricket and a football club was a bit of a blokey or a male environment. But these days, things have changed quite significantly and for the better. There are now men's and women's teams, there are now boys' and girls' teams, and the whole scene in the club rooms is much more mixed and diverse and relaxed and inclusive, and it's better. But one thing that hasn't changed yet is for someone to cry. I've seen men and women break bones, tear tendons right off the bone or be knocked out and carried off the field in complete agony and disorientation, but they don't cry. I assume it's because crying is seen as some sort of sign of weakness or something like that. Well, of course, crying is not a sign of weakness. It's a human sign when one is in emotional or spiritual or physical pain. The one exception to people not crying in the club rooms was the night that my friend Andy died. Some of you have heard this story before, so I won't go into it in detail, but he was one of the fathers playing in our father-son cricket team in the fourths and in the grand final he collapsed on the field. He actually caught the ball to tie the match in the grand final, but I won't go into that. If it wasn't true, you wouldn't believe it. But there were ambulances and CPR, etc., and it was very dramatic as youngsters, including my son James, watched a young man, uh, a, a middle-aged man, go into the process of ultimately losing his grip on life. So he went off to hospital and everyone else went back to the club rooms that night. But when the news came through that he had died, I watched tough men break down and cry and weep and hug each other inconsolably as their mate was suddenly gone I think that's the only time I've ever seen someone cry in the club rooms it was a milestone occasion for all the wrong reasons but crying was necessary and plenty of men and women and boys and girls were crying that night so too with our scene here in Gethsemane this place called Gethsemane a garden outside of Jerusalem Jesus' disciples had seen Jesus cry before. This wasn't the first time. In the famous scene in John 11 where Jesus is told about the death of his friend Lazarus in verse 35, which, let me say, is a wonderful Bible memory verse. Two words, friends. Take note. Two words. In John 11:35, 35, it says, Jesus wept. There you go. You can commit that to memory right now. just got to remember the address and you're good. And we see Jesus cry elsewhere. Luke 19.41, Jesus' Jesus' emotional response to the sight of Jerusalem was recorded. Let me read this out. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And the writer to the Hebrews records also the reality of Jesus' emotional investment in his mission and his tears in Hebrews 5.7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. But there's something different about Jesus' tears here in Gethsemane. These were not just tears for a moment. There was something else going on, and these tears were a revelation to Jesus' followers, and as a result of them, they would look at him differently in the hours that were left in his life. Jesus, until this moment, had been the strong one. Sure, on occasions, as I've said, the disciples saw him cry and they got a deeper glimpse into his psyche, perhaps uh, at some of the, uh, the, the moments I've referred to. But in this scene, he's like a child understanding their parent. It's like a child who understands their parent differently when the child sees the parent weep. Maybe it's the child seeing the parent like the superhero, all of a sudden realising that they are human and paying a price. There's a definite shift here in our understanding of what Jesus is going through. Tom Wright says this, Basically, he'd always been the strong one, always ready with another story, another sharp one-liner to turn the tables on some probing questioner, another soaring vision of God and the kingdom, It was the disciples who always had the problems and Jesus who had the answers. And now this. Earlier that night, Jesus had offered the group the cup of wine, which they took and drank in the mysterious atmosphere of the Last Supper. You can look it up in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. We looked at it just recently. If you want to refresh that scene. Now in this scene... He faces his own cup, the most horrible of cups. And he was overwhelmed with grief and sorrow for what was upon him. And he needed to pray and seek the Father. So he took Peter, James and John with him to a quiet spot. Verses 37, 38 explain it. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, "My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me." Why did he ask them to keep watch? Because he already knew, as we've seen, that Judas had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, which was a worth around about four months' wages, or something like25,000 dollars. Remember Matthew 26, 14 to 16, spelt out Judas' actions. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Matthew had been sure not only to record Judas' actions in this chapter and his betrayal in those verses, but also to show the level of misunderstanding that Judas had about what he was doing. And Matthew made the point by comparing what Judas did to the woman who poured the alabaster jar of perfume over Jesus in verses 6 and 7, where it says, where Matthew wrote, "'While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive purple uh, perfume, which she poured over his head as he was reclining at the table. Now understand this, as Paul explained so well a few weeks ago. This woman poured about a year's worth of wages over Jesus' head, or let's say something like $75,000 of savings over Jesus' head. So let's just understand for a moment in modern parlance how indulgent her action was. This illustration isn't exact at all, but it makes the point. If you wanted to buy some fine perfume, and I googled it, something like Giorgio Armani for $150 for 100 mils, that's what it costs. Well, if you bought $75,000 worth of Giorgio Armani, you would end up with 50 litres of the stuff. So this act is something like I mean it wasn't 50 liters Jesus wasn't baptized or anything like that but think of it in terms of the value of tipping that much perfume over Jesus head of that sort of price and value that was what was going on in that scene uh, that scene Her act was outrageously indulgent and it, but and yet it was appropriate for Jesus and for what he was facing but Judas couldn't think beyond himself and Judas did not get it. And what about the disciples in that scene? They didn't get it either. In verses 8 and 9, they actually asked. When the disciples saw her tip this water, this uh, perfume over Jesus' head, they were indignant. "Why this waste?" they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. So here in this scene, we have Jesus, in Gethsemane, with the weight of the world on his shoulders. And Matthew comments that he was overwhelmed to the point of death. And here, Jesus' three closest friends and supporters are just meant to do one thing he needs them to watch out for him, lest Judas's tip about where he is, his whereabouts, is quickly discovered and the mob rush to seize him. He wants them to keep watch. Sure, Jesus knew what was coming, but first he needed to pray. And as it turns out, see what was coming indeed was still the only way. So, remembering the cup that he'd just offered to his disciples, Matthew records, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, I'd like to think that if one of my friends was in a situation like this and there was a possible mob coming to arrest him or take him, that I and my friends would be able to stay up all night and look out and protect him and keep guard for him or her. And I'll go one step further. If my friend was in a situation like that, keeping guard is not a heroic activity. It's just what you do. Have a think about it. Nurses work on night shift to keep patients alive who they don't even know. Truck drivers are driving up and down the highways of our nation all the time overnight to deliver stuff for us. Without thanks, it's not heroic. Pilots and their crew and the ground maintenance staff work all night to keep the aviation industry going. Plenty of students have done all-nighters to get an essay in on time. Raise your hands if you've done that. Yeah. Matt, our resident weather forecaster over here, does all-nighters all the time to keep ships safe in the, re- in the oceans of our region. And Jesus' disciples couldn't stay awake all night while the mob were coming to arrest him to kill him. That's pretty useless, really, as friends. Jesus asking his disciples to keep vigil is not asking for a heroic response. Plenty of people do all-nighters for good reasons. And Jesus' reason and need was exceptional. But Peter, James and John failed. And they didn't just fail once, they failed three times. This is what Matthew records. when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed a third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? This is a passage that is filled not only with the betrayal and the horror of what is unfolding, but there's something else lurking in this text that haunts the reader. This is a scene filled with the utter depth and despair of loneliness. We see here that Jesus is truly on his own. Alone. All, all, alone. As Samuel Coleridge said in the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which shows I learnt something when I was at school. Alone, alone, all, all, alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. How's that? Well, it's something. Thank you. Um, Alone, completely alone. His closest disciples and ministry partners fell asleep, not once, but three times. And it's not the kind of falling asleep that doesn't matter. Like at a slumber party when you try to stay awake with your friends and see who's the last one to stay awake and someone falls asleep because it doesn't really matter. It's just a bit of fun. This situation's about keeping vigil in case soldiers come to take Jesus away. It has the same dangers, um, and and, and in, it has the same dangers and sense of failure as a sentry keeping watch over a city wall. If that sentry falls asleep and the enemy comes, the whole city can go. Or a sailor sitting in a crow's nest on a mast, looking out for icebergs or some imminent danger. The task here has grave responsibility and failure by falling asleep has ultimate seriousness and consequence. This is no slumber party. So Jesus goes to a private place to wrestle with himself and with his father about his situation and the ultimate surrender to the need that he must make while his disciples fail. He is in deep peril, spiritually Physically, psychologically, emotionally, and he finds out that he has no one to rely on. Jesus has been there before, of course. In Matthew 4, he wrestled with the devil's temptations in the desert, having fasted for 40 days. Jesus fought a spiritual battle then that he needed to win because he needed to know that he could pass that test then for what was coming and was now in Gethsemane upon him. There's a lesson here for us, friends. Actually, there's many lessons about self-mastery and discipline and what to do when things aren't going well for us. And there are incredible lessons about the love and the sacrifice that Jesus made. And there's a lesson about here about faithfulness. I posted a little video on my Facebook page this week about a timely reminder from our late queen about a speech she gave a few years ago in the midst of the pandemic. Let me quote it to you. She said, never give up, never despair. When life seems hard, the courageous do not lie down and accept defeat. Instead, the courageous are all the more determined to struggle for a better future. But it is often the small steps, not the giant leaps that bring about lasting change. While we still may still have more to endure, and she's talking about the, the pandemic, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. The lesson that she captures so well is to be faithful, even if it requires courage. When someone is struggling, you don't have to promise anything or get hyper spiritual in your language. Just turn up. Often silence is the best, but be there. As the late Queen said, small steps. A gentle presence, a prayerful presence that doesn't have answers, just presence, just faithfulness. I've seen so much damage done by well-meaning people who think our task as Christians is to fix everything for someone who is ill, or in a pit, or going through the valley. You don't, friends. You just should be there. Just be there. Jesus didn't need his disciples to do anything other than faithfully be there and watch out for him. To give him some moments of preparation in prayer before his captors came for him. And he couldn't count on them in his moment of need. I have many books that I say are my favourite books and this is one of them, um, a tiny little book I've read several times by a, uh, a, a person called Parker Palmer and uh, it's called Let Your Life Speak, there it is up on, on the board and it's, um, it's a wonderful reflection on finding your vocation, on finding what you should do in life and his ultimate idea is your vocation is doing who you are. Anyway, I could go into that. But he tells this this really interesting reflection that's worth reading to you about this. In this case, he was depressed and his valley, his situation was one of depression. And he says this, reflecting on his experience in this book and the visitors that came to visit him. I do not like to speak ungratefully of my visitors. They all meant well and they were among the few who did not avoid me altogether. But despite their good intentions, most of them acted like Job's comforters. The friends who came to Job in his misery and offered sympathy that led him into deeper despair. Some visitors, in an effort to cheer me up, would say, ''It's a beautiful day. Why don't you go out and soak up some sunshine and look at the flowers? Surely that will make you feel better.'' But that advice only made me feel more depressed. Intellectually, I knew that the day was beautiful but I was unable to experience that beauty through my senses, to feel it in my body. Depression is the ultimate state of disconnection, not just between people, but between one's mind and one's feelings. To be reminded of that disconnection only deepened my my despair. Other people said to me, ''But you're such a good person, Parker. ''You teach and write so well. ''You've helped so many people. ''Try to remember all the good you've done. ''Surely you'll feel better.'' That advice too left me more depressed, for it plunged me into the immense gap between my good persona and the bad person I believed myself to be. When I heard those words, I thought one more person has been defrauded, has seen my image rather than my reality, and if people ever saw the real me, they would reject me in a flash. Depression is the ultimate state of disconnection, not only between people and between mind and heart, but between one's self-image and public mask. Then there were visitors he continues who began by saying i know exactly how you feel whatever comfort or counsel these people may have intended to speak i heard nothing beyond their opening words because i knew they were peddling a falsehood no one can fully experience another person's mystery paradoxically It was my friend's empathetic attempt to identify with me that made me feel even more isolated because it was over-identification. Disconnection may be hell, but it's better than false connections. Having not only been comforted by friends, he writes, but, um, but having tried to comfort others in the same way, I think I understand what the syndrome is about. Avoidance and denial. One of the hardest things we must do sometimes to be present to another person's pain without trying to fix it, and here's his point, is to stand respectfully at the edge of that person's mystery and misery. Standing there, we feel weak, useless, powerless, which is exactly how a depressed person feels. And our unconscious need as Job's comforters is to reassure ourselves that we're not like the sad soul before us. In an effort to avoid these feelings, I give advice which sets me, not you, free. If you take my advice, you uh, you may get well. And if you don't get well, I did the best I could. If you fail to take my advice, there's nothing more I can do. Either way, I get relief by distancing myself from you, guilt-free. Blessedly, there were several people, family and friends, who had the courage to stand with me in a simple and healing way. One of them was a friend named Bill who, having asked my permission to do so, stopped, my, stopped by my home every afternoon, sat me down in a chair, knelt in front of me, removed my shoes and socks and for half an hour simply massaged my feet. He found the one place in my body where I still could experience feeling and feel somewhat reconnected with the human race. Bill rarely spoke a word. When he did, he never gave advice, but simply mirrored my condition. He would say, I can sense your struggle today, or it feels like you're getting stronger. I could not always respond, but his words were deeply helpful. They reassured me that I could still be seen by someone. Life giving.